0: everyone. This is the final episode of About This. I'm hoping this show can continue after I graduate in some capacity, but I really enjoyed what this experiment of a show was. I really just got to sit down and talk to some amazing journalists and that's all I could really ask for. So if you listen to one episode or all of them or 15 minutes of one, thank you. It's been a pleasure putting this show together, and Jay, shout out to Jay, thank you for being a great editor and overall news director. I've really enjoyed my time at WICB. I started only my junior year, and the first story I ever did was on cemeteries, so if you want to check that out, you can. But for the final episode of About This, getting around to it, my guest is Albert Samaha, He's an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed News, and he has a predicament. His mom is a devout QAnon supporter, conspiracy theorist, believer, and he talks about his own journey, an emotional process coming to terms with that. Here's Albert.
1: The story sort of chronicles my mom and I's effort to persuade one another of our own belief systems. She's a passionate um, subscriber to the QAnon uh, conspiracy theories, and, and I'm, I'm not, I'm a member, I'm a journalist, obviously. Being a journalist sort of makes me complicit in in the deep state liberal media that that QAnon believers see. Um, And so the story sort of tracks the tensions between our efforts to persuade one another and sort of tracks um, how she fell down the rabbit hole and how we've been able to maintain our relationship in spite of that divergence.
0: You've been a reporter for quite some time now. What made you decide that you were gonna write this piece now?
1: You know, I, I've been thinking about it for a while, you know, my mom and I have, have kind of had this ongoing discussion for a long time. For the past like three, four years, I've been working on a, a book about my family. So I've been interviewing my mom. So we'd already sort of had this journalist source relationship. And I, you know, spent a lot of 2020 thinking about whether I was going to write an essay like this. Um, but it wasn't until the the capital insurrection on January 6th that I was sort of compelled to write it, I think, because it's sort of Shocked me into seeing that these conspiracy theories not only weren't going away, but were actually persuading people to to take these dangerous decisions with their own lives. And I think my own struggle to reckon with, you know, what could have happened if my mom had gone to D.C. that day, or or um, you know, what would happen in the future if if, if more insurrections and, and and violent rallies happened. I knew enough to know that I wasn't the only one in that situation, and I'd heard a lot of people who would sort of cut themselves off from loved ones because of because of the gap uh, between their ideologies and and I thought it would be helpful uh, to others if they could see kind of that they weren't alone and they could see what my mom and my relationship looked like through this also I think kind of for more of a selfish reason I think as as a writer it sort of helps me process a lot of the troubles you know that, that i see around me i think that's always been the case for me whether it's covering police shootings or COVID, I've, I've always managed to find some sort of catharsis or or at least distraction from being able to like give myself some sort of journalistic detachment from the troubles you know surrounding us and this sort of felt the same way where i think by putting it in writing i was able to process my thoughts more and, and also felt like i could i could put our troubling divergence to some sort of use to, to see that it wasn't in vain and perhaps it could help other people understand their own relationships um, with their loved ones or, or, or other people to at least understand um, why so many folks believe um, in these false theories.
0: When did you realize your relationship with your mom was very different, that it was going to be very different?
1: I think it was a gradual thing. I think I'd, 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 I'd known really since college that, that our ideological paths were beginning to diverge And it was really me that was moving to the left because obviously, like a lot of kids, I sort of just adopted whatever beliefs my mom had. And I think once I I went to college and and started developing my own politics and and, and principles, um, it was me that sort of began to drift from her. And so that just sort of happened naturally. And for the first some years, it was pretty much just a a political or ideological divide where, where she just was more conservative on a lot of issues her top issues was um being pro-life i was so much more uh, liberal on a a lot of issues my top issues were like social safety net stuff and that was all pretty conventional and i think i started to realize an acceleration in our divide when trump entered the picture in in, in 2016 um because because then he it went from him just being a politician like any other to, to sort of being like a demagogue and she sort of placed her faith in her in a way she hadn't in any other politician before him. I think before him, even though she's, you know, the Republican candidate she supported, she sort of did so with a bit of cynicism of, of kind of still seeing them as distant members of a political class who's more, who are more self-interested than than who care about the will of the people. And she saw them more of like vessels for the policy she wanted. Uh, whereas with Trump, it took on more of more of a messianic role where, where she It wasn't even specific policies that she believed in, although there were those. It was more so that she just fully placed her faith in him as as a person. And that was where I began to really realize that our divides weren't just over uh, simple policies, but over how we were actually reading the landscape of reality around us.
0: Can you go into what it was like growing up with your mom? You write about uh, she's a devout Catholic, and that's at the center of many of her beliefs but you also write about your own experience with religion and being very into religion, even going into high school. Can you just explain that relationship when you were younger?
1: I mean, my mom and I were very close. It was a single mom only child situation. So we were attached to hip. Um, We were each other's sort of main confidant. Uh, We traveled a lot together. Um, I moved around schools a lot when I was a kid. So she was sort of this bastion of stability for me. And, And because, faith was a big part of her life it was inevitably a big part of my life so i just sort of grew up under her uh, under that sort of catholic devotion i think the way a lot of kids do right you kind of go to church every sunday and you, you you pray on good friday and and all that and i think by the time i reached middle school or high school and i had kind of my own agency in the situation i began to develop an interest in in actually like learning more about it and i became more interested about it where it wasn't just sort of going to church because my mom makes me but because i truly believed and I, and I very much wanted to you know receive those blessings and and kind of live a, a holy life as 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 i was taught to do kind of developed like a scholastic interest in it where like my term paper in high school was was focused on the development of the the new testament canon um i prayed the rosary like before bed i wrote bible verses on my cleats really like kind of living up to the the image that my mom had wanted for me and and so at that point we were pretty much aligned on most things um and we're sort of each other's most trusted voices in a lot of ways
0: are you still religious
1: i'm kind of religious um i'm definitely not as religious as i was back then but i don't know. i don't really consider it i mean i consider my religion i guess more part of my culture than than anything else than like some sort of guiding ideology to me it's sort of about the lessons you draw from whatever teachings you subscribe to to me like that's sort of the fundamental thing so i mean in a classical sense i think a lot of people would say i'm not religious but i do still you know reflexively do the sign of the cross when i like get on an airplane or you know like say a quick prayer if i'm feeling scared about something so like Part of those sort of movements and rhythms are still a part of my life, just the way that my like, my culture is. Like, you know, my, my ethnic culture or my culture of living, you know, with my friends in a certain city or, or my sports fandoms have stuck with me. Like to me, like religion is just another one of those parts that's just sort of indelible to me. I'll never not be able to have memorized the Hail Mary or the Our Father. You know, I'm always gonna go to Christmas mass with my mom. So in those ways, it's just always a part of me, though now, kind of much more peripheral and no longer sort of central to my identity or to my interests or to even my conception of like what it means to be a a good person.
0: In the piece, you explain this uh, family history, this kind of exodus from the Philippines to California. You write about how your mom, I think when she was 21, became a flight attendant in Saudi Arabia. Can you explain how she I guess just that that family history, and then her ascent into politics, and then QAnon from there.
1: She grew up in a middle-class household in the Philippines, um, in Manila. Uh, her dad was a lawyer. Her mom worked was an accountant at the Philippine Central Bank. They'd always had plans to come to the States, even though they, they had some privilege in the Philippines, just because that was sort of the dream for a lot of Filipinx people. And, they, you know, there were some delays in their plans after the, the immigration quotas were lifted in 1965. They ultimately were still in the Philippines when, Uh, the Ferdinand Marcos dictatorship came around in 1972 and then the next few years were kind of a like a rough stretch of the economy contracting you know dissidents being jailed a lot of kind of totalitarian policies being implemented and so by the time they left in 1978 by the time my grandmother left in 1978 to sort of plant the flag in San Francisco the family was no longer under sort of stable ground it had been a decade earlier and then after my grand grandma Went to San Francisco, the trickle just so slowly started from there. First an auntie, then another auntie, then another auntie, then an uncle. And soon, by the time my mom was going to Saudi Arabia, half of her family was in California. And so by the time she came to California that I was born, we already had this kind of stable family infrastructure in place. And she wasn't too political at the time. Her experience under martial law had left her a bit disillusioned to government and left her a bit cynical in terms of uh, the trust she placed in public officials and and the um, role she expected government to play in her life. And, And so she sort of just stayed out of the mix for some time. I mean, she wasn't a citizen yet, so she couldn't vote. So there wasn't like that practical implication. And it wasn't until maybe like late 90s, early 2000s, when she sort of realized that, and she, you know, around this time, she's listening to Catholic radio stations. She's watching Pat Robertson on the Seven Hundred Club, and she's hearing from them. They're sort of educating her on the idea that Republicans are largely pro-life and and Democrats are largely pro-choice. And sort of based on that uh, moral compass of abortion, she pledged her allegiance to Republicans and just sort of kind of just whoever the more pro-life candidate was was the person who she would support. Um, But even then, it wasn't it wasn't a hardcore kind of political passion. It was. More sort of just a perfunctory, I side with whoever is in favor of more restrictions uh, on abortion. And that's sort of like where it sat for a while. I mean, she continued to listen to those same Christian conservative voices. And it wasn't really around like once Obama was elected that she began to, that we began to really talk about politics. Like I wasn't really that interested in politics before 2008 either. But then when obama was elected i supported him and i can and i told my mom i supported him and she supported him too we both sort of supported him for like kind of superficial reasons like i liked him because he played basketball and like new hip-hop lyrics my mom liked him because she was because he was like uh the son of a of a single mom who like was raised in different places around the world so we sort of like felt a connection to to him and his family um in that way i also like was in favor of his healthcare plan and, and, and my mom was too. But then like shortly after his election, she quickly learned from Fox News or, or wherever else she was reading or watching that the Affordable Care Act also covered abortion in some cases. And so she just felt like betrayed by him and realized that that she had uh, made a mistake and and very quickly, you know, went back to, to her trusted voices. And, and that's when she began to to listen to some of the, the birtherism conspiracies um conspiracies about like whether Obama was really Christian and all that sort of stuff that kind of the far right wing was promoting in those years um and that's sort of when the slide into disinformation began that's sort of where I pegged not just for my mom but I think for the public at large I think is kind of where it began in those post-Obama years
0: was it like an immediate red flag when your mom started talking about birtherism or conspiracy theories around Obama? Like, did you think it would fade away? Or were you like, this is the beginning to something bad?
1: I think I figured it it would fade away. It was definitely a red flag, because it was the first time that my mom was sort of promoting a reality that I believed was provably false. Like she had subscribed to conspiracy theories like the Illuminati and the Freemasons, but those just felt sort of benign, because it was just sort of, like ghost stories about machinations happening behind the scenes that really had a little bearing on our lives or our decision-making process. It was all just very abstract and didn't really, wasn't a big discussion topic. It was just like, oh yeah, Illuminati runs everything, like whatever, keep them moving. Um, but with Obama, it was like sort of specific claims that were like very clearly untrue. And so that there was sort of a bridge cross there for me where it was that if if she doesn't believe that Obama was born here, or that Obama was a Christian, what else might she be susceptible to not believing? It sort of revealed to me the true power of some of those voices she was listening to and and how far they could sway people even against all the evidence available.
0: Can you just uh, go into some of the main QAnon conspiracy theories, ones your mom believes in?
1: Yeah, the core theory is that a global cabal of Satan worshiping child sex traffickers runs the world, kind of maintains just child trafficking ring and that a lot of Democrats and Hollywood elites and celebrities and all that are part of this group. And that's the main core. And then sort of that's perched on this idea that Donald Trump is the one person standing in their way, the one person brave enough and powerful enough to, to try to topple the deep state cabal. And there's a lot of just, uh, kind of shorter-term prophecies, folks like Tom, Tom Hanks and Oprah Winfrey have been arrested or executed, and that what we're, that now the the people we think we're seeing as Tom Hanks or Oprah Winfrey are actually clones, or that John F. Kennedy Jr., that he had faked his death and was planning to come back to be Trump's running mate, you know, on, on a certain day, you know, the power grid would go out. There had been all these prophecies that seemed pretty easy to prove they didn't happen because You know, sometimes the date passed and nothing happened. Other times it's like, well, there's you know, Tom Hanks on live television. And and like I put in the story, I I think you know, what I initially seen as a as a weakness of the conspiracy, um, it's sort of the fact that so many of these things are so obviously not true, I realized was 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 a strength, that it was a versatile theory, that that it was malleable, it was it was a living thing, and that the people who who followed these these beliefs were willing to hear the explanations for why the prophecies didn't pan out, that, that a false prophecy didn't indicate that the theory wasn't real, it indicated that something had changed or that there was a, a new plan in motion. Um, and, and sort of the the whole theory spins around the idea that uh, of the storm coming, the storm being the day, the mass arrests of everybody in the deep state cabal gets exposed for the world to see. Um, And that's sort of the thing that, the sort of central failed prophecy that you know, there's been many dates when it was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen on, before the inauguration, it was supposed to happen during the inauguration, it was supposed to happen in March. And, and that's sort of the, the the marker that keeps changing. And, and, and as it keeps changing, more and more people are dropping out of the belief system. But some folks like my mom are, are still stinging it and still believing it.
0: Are you still, would you say, close with your mom?
1: Very close, yeah.
0: What does it feel like to be so close with someone you love who, it's not even like they're a Republican and you're a Democrat, but that there's this different set of reality, like no amount of fact or evidence or article you can send them will change their mind.
1: Um, it can be frustrating at times, um, in part because, you know, we both really care. Like it, to bo- it's important to both of us. We're both sort of politically minded. And so just as I want to persuade her to not believe these things, she wants to persuade me to not believe what she thinks are is a false worldview that I have. So I think for some time it was just sort of these frustrating impasses that we would keep reaching because we weren't able to, um, to persuade each other. And then eventually I think we sort of realized that we didn't want it to consume us. And we stopped trying to persuade each other and started just trying to understand each other. And I think we turned the corner once it no longer became about trying to prove the other person wrong and more about trying to understand why the other person believes what they believe. Um, and also I think we became conscious that there was a point when it seemed to consume us, where it would be the only thing we talked about every time we got on the phone, and that wasn't healthy. Um, and slowly and gradually and very consciously, we made sure to like limit our conversations on that and not keep going around in circles. You know, We talk enough that we know where the other person stands so it's not like we know where the other person stands and and like, we've been through the sort of cycle of debates enough times that we know it's not going to like lead anywhere. So now, even if we do start to like debate a new update that happens, it'll probably just go in just like a few minutes because within, within those minutes, it's like, okay, we've said what we need to say, we know where this is going and you know, We can just move on and talk about something else. And that's what we've gotten better at doing, is not allowing it to consume us um, and like, you know, building our relationship on like all the other common ground that we have.
0: So it sounds like in many ways your relationship still works.
1: I think so. I think so.
0: Why do you think that is? I mean, why do some people reach an impasse and they can no longer foster a relationship with someone that shares such a different worldview of them? Whereas in your case, it's still able to work.
1: Yeah, somehow. No, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think part of it might be that we were we were like we come from a family that's that's very like loving and positive and supportive and so like conflict and turmoil has just never really been in our DNA. So I think that plays a role. I think it does play a role is that the other thing that plays a role is that we've just always been close, that it was just me and her for such a long time that it's unthinkable for us to cut off our relationship under any circumstances. Um, And I mean, I I do wonder what you know how much of it is kind of that that immigrant mindset is that is that you know that when when you're part of an immigrant group part of an immigrant family. You sort of put your fam like your family is like your your tribe. you're sort of together through thick and thin as you're running up against the headwinds of American oppression and and lifting everybody up and the strongest, you know, helping support the weakest and and everyone sort of taking care of each other. Like that was always the mindset that my family had is that we all take care of each other. When you're up, you take care of those who are down. And when you're down, you can expect to be taken care of from those who are up. And so that bond in our family, we're a very close family, I think, just sort of made it unthinkable to not have a relationship with my mom. I like didn't even cross my mind to ever cut her off. Um, and it wasn't even until other people started asking me about it that I even considered what that would, what that would be like. For me, this was just like a thing we disagreed about, but was not the defining thing of our relationship.
0: I guess the situation, like your mom believing in these QAnon theories, have you come to a place where it causes less pain or it's still there, but you're, I don't know, like it's, it's like smoldered. Or-
1: yeah. It, it's less painful than it was. I mean, I think like anything else, you get numb to anything, you get used to it. But I also think it's also just less intense. I think that also plays, it's not just that I'm more numb to it. It's that it is also just legitimately less painful. Now that Trump is no longer president, now that Q is no longer dropping messages, like the intensity has just dipped since, really since, since the inauguration, where it's not that my mom believes anything different. But there's not as many news stories about it. There's not as many allegations of fraudulent elections. There's not stuff about whether, you know, the coronavirus was was a hoax, not stuff about like, uh, you know, fake protesters at Black Lives Matter rallies and stuff like that. There's just so much happening last year and really over the last four years that it was impossible to escape, right? Like the way Trump was just so central in all of our lives. There was no way for us not to talk. I mean, like I talked about Trump with all my friends, whether we we're at a dinner and, you know, it's just a, a thing you talk about, because there were just oh, there was just always something wild and terrifying and and important happening. And so I could not talk about it. And and I also think part of the pain was just from this idea of like of of like the disinformation winning this idea that those four years and especially those months before the election it's a question of like, is just is this it? Are we just sliding down an increasingly horrifying decline? And I think the rejuvenation of 2021 has helped alleviate the pain as well. Um, just because of anything, it's given me a bit more hope that, you know, a lot of people still do care about the right things and listen to the right sources. And that as bleak as it has looked at times there are still glimmers of hope to hold on to. And so even though that kind of has nothing to do with my mom, for me personally, dealing with it internally, it has helped.
0: So I was doing some reading on conspiracy theories and why psychologically people may gravitate toward them. And this professor of social psychology at University of Kent, Dr. Douglas, said there's basically like three important psychological motives for conspiracy theories. And the first one being a need for knowledge and certainty and a desire to have information. Like when something really big happens, like nine 11, there's this need to know why it happened. And there's a need to feel certain about why it happened, which I guess explains maybe this uh, mentality of like digging your heels in the ground, capital T truth with conspiracy theories. And then the second one being, it's a way to gain control. Like if you feel powerless, if you feel hopeless, these theories offer a way to have control in a situation that you may not have had before. And then the third just being like a self-esteem thing. It's It feels good to have exclusive knowledge over other people. It feels good to be a part of a group that is somehow in the know. So knowing this, and again, I think there's many factors why someone might gravitate toward conspiracy theories. I don't think it's these three like cookie cutter reasons, but knowing this... Why do you think your mother began to gravitate toward these conspiracy theories and and just devoting her life to quote unquote uncovering the truth?
1: I think all of those things played a role. Um, I mean, if I had to trace sort of the ins the inflection point at which she became susceptible to believing conspiracy theories, I mean it was growing up under a dictatorship, you know, where, you know, she had grown up in the shadow of a conspiracy theory that you know Ferdinand Marcos grabbed power by orchestrating a false flag campaign where he blamed communists for attacking you know military parades and 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 the defense secretary um and, and 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 orchestrated bombings that were blamed on on communists that that the that Marcos and his security forces had actually um orchestrated so so she was sort of she didn't have the luxury of you know turning away from the dirty machinations behind behind the scenes you know she grew up seeing firsthand that the dirty machinations behind the scenes have direct impacts on people's lives and that the government can have outsized power on people's lives and can operate in ways that we know nothing about Um, so she was already primed to to sort of look beyond the obvious by the time she got to the states and i think that's why some of those illuminati information conspiracies appealed to her is because they spoke to a reality similar to the one that she had lived through and mixed that with the trust she lost in mainstream media because of allegations from the voices she trusted on the right that they were Secular and, and had were sort of out to get the church. She lost some trust in mainstream media during the reporting on a lot of the priest sex abuse scandals because she was of the belief that that you know the the priests who abused kids were infiltrators from some of these secret societies, um, and that the media was missing the message and trying to focus on taking down the church. So she sort of had the skepticism about media because of her loyalties to the church and the right wing you know, disinformation ecosystem really exploited that and presented an alternative and said, we agree with you on the issues you care about most. You should trust us on everything else. And it just sort of went from there. Like once she had voices she can trust, she was just in their grip.
0: I think a lot of people, when they hear these conspiracy theories or they talk to people that believe in these conspiracy theories, it's just really easy to dismiss them and to dismiss this entire thought or ideology as just like, they're crazy. They don't know the facts. They don't know the reality, but it it sounds like you're a lot more understanding about where your mom is coming from.
1: Yeah. I really, I really don't want to underestimate how important it was for me to be working on a reported project about my family's history. I think because I had been interviewing my mom for this book, I had already sort of developed the ability to be speaking with her and to be engaging with her as a journalist as opposed to as a concerned son. And so in moments when I might get frustrated as a son, I like ask myself, like, what would I do as a journalist in this situation? And so I think having that framework for navigating our relationship from that lens was really useful because it gave me a sort of mechanism to to avoid, to sidestep whatever frustration I might feel personally, because I had this sort of professional mask I could don. And so I think that played a role. And then I think once I began to engage with her as a journalist, sort of detaching myself from the personal frustration, I began to see progress in terms of how our conversations would go and I was just like oh this is just way better. I'm learning much more about her. I have a much better understanding of why she believes these things and instead of making no ground trying to persuade her, I could make more ground just by listening and by talking through where she's at and and showing that she can turn to me even if we don't agree that I that I'm uh, always going to listen. And so I think by engaging with her as a journalist I learned how to engage with her as a son.
0: Did your mom read this piece? She did, yeah. And what was her reaction?
1: Um, she liked it. She liked it. Her one concern was that I would embarrass her in front of her friends, you know, that her her friends would see that I was like a liberal media journalist and would like, like think that was, you know, a shame or a mockery or whatever. But that didn't pan out. Her friends also liked it. They, they have similar situations with, with their kids. So she liked it. She liked it. Um, I think it meant a lot for her, for the world to sort of she sort of feels the same way about feeling bad for people who've had to cut off relationships. Some of her friends have had to do that with their own kids. And so she thought it was important for people to see how our relationship worked. And so I think in that sense, like her and a lot of her friends did appreciate it and, and did felt that that it wasn't about proving them wrong. It was about engaging with what it is this has done to people's relationships.
0: What would you say to someone who is struggling with a relationship they have similar in your position.
1: Every relationship is different. You know, everybody comes into it with their own baggage um and history. You know, what works for me and my mom, you know, probably doesn't work for everybody. I think I think maybe the only thing that can apply universally to folks on both sides is is at least the 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 a a good faith effort to listen and and i think it can be frustrating to listen when you're listening to things you you know are untrue but i think one thing that that helped my mom and i was once we gave up the fight to persuade once we accept the fact that the measure of success for our relationship was not whether one of us could persuade the other and, and that actually, in our effort to persuade one another, in our divergence, you know, that's kind of, that, that was an evidence of our bond. You know, the fact that we wanted, that we care enough about one another to try to persuade the other. Um, and, and that the emotions come from a place of love. For those, I think, that like try to, that want to preserve their relationships, I mean, I guess one option is to just not talk about that stuff. But I, I also don't know if that's a very viable option because these are important things. And for people who believe in these theories, this is one of the most important things in their life. And so it's like, they want to talk about it. And for people who are, who for their loved ones, it's an important thing because they see their loved one going down a path that that troubles them. So I don't know if it's a viable option to just simply say, don't talk about it. But I do think it it, it, it can help to just, um just accept that persuasion is not the measure of success. And that, is is that what and that when when you listen, it's hard for the person across from you to get angry or upset or frustrated. And so if folks on both sides of that debate are actively listening, knowing full well that they totally disagree with everything the other person's saying, you know I think one thing I've learned you know in my like decade plus as a journalist is that, People just want to be heard. People want to feel like they're heard. And even if they know that their act of speaking isn't going to change anything, just being able to speak and say their piece makes people feel better. That's not to say to like, that's not to say to give in to the falsities. Like I still tell my mom, like, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. We just don't go back and forth and fight about it. You know, like, I still think it's important to like, point out when I disagree with something. It's just a matter of showing where I stand as opposed to trying to pull her to my side.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate the questions.